to welcome you to our UIS podcast series. This podcast is hosted by the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy. Since 1996, we provide research, consulting and strategy on topics concerning European and foreign security policy to national and European stakeholders. Through our publications, workshops and public events, we seek to inform civil society and shape the debate. I am Sofia Maria Satanakis, IES Research Fellow, and I'm happy to host our first podcast episode. Today, we will talk about space, which has become an essential element of almost any key policy area, including security, economic development, mobility and environmental issues. For this reason, space is becoming ever more relevant, but at the same time more and more contested as countries compete for the technological upper hand. In our recently published focus paper, Space Race 2.0, Renewed Great Power Competition in the Earth's Orbit, we looked at the phenomenon of increasing militarization in the space domain, which we are going to discuss together with Christoph Schwarz. Christoph has been working as an intern at our institute since January this year and completed his bachelor's degree in global sales and marketing with a focus on cross-cultural management at the University of Applied Sciences, Upper Austria, and spent a semester abroad at the Polytechnic University in Hong Kong. After completing his bachelor, Christoph Schwarz changed his focus on his actual passion, international relations, and completed his master's degree in international and European relations at the Linköping University in Sweden. He wrote his master's thesis on the Europeanization of Austria's security and defense policy within the framework of the common security and defense policy and its effects on the role of neutrality. Welcome, Christoph. Thank you, Sophia, and thank you for the introduction. I'm very excited to be part of the first episode. For all our listeners who are not too familiar with the topic, can you first tell us why space is even relevant to countries militarily and how did it all begin? Well, the history of humanity in space has also always been a military one. Um, the space age uh, sort of started with the start of the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union with the launch of Sputnik 1 um, by the Soviets, the first ever satellite uh, launched into orbit. And this caused fear in the United States that it could be used uh, to transport nuclear weapons and directly attack uh, US soil, uh, which then led to the Americans spending large amounts of money into research to catch up with the Soviets. And this race went on, as probably everybody knows, until 1969 when the US Apollo 11 mission landed on the moon successfully for the very first time. And this period was uh, really shaped by fierce competition between the great powers. And what was different to today, however, was that space military applications had much more of a strategic significance uh, rather than tactical uh, in warfighting, meaning that uh, it was mostly uh, reconnaissance operations, so spying on the enemy with satellites, and some say that this was even sort of a stabilizing element between the two because there was more information available uh, on the enemy. This, however, changed greatly in uh, the Gulf War in 1990-1991, um, where the U.S. involvement in the war for the first time really showed uh, the tactical significance of space application. So this included signals intelligence, meaning the interception of adversarial signals, telecommunication, positioning, navigation, and uh, several other 
technical advancements that allowed, for example, to the use of precision guided uh, munition. So in the beginning of the 90s, space uh, capabilities really changed warfighting um, to an extremely large degree and was not only, as I said, used strategically, but tactically tactically in warfighting, um, which yeah, made a, a very, very big difference on, on the battlefield. Um, as a result of this kind of change from purely strategic to also tactical significance, um, other countries, most notably Russia and China, um, drastically increased also their focus on ASAT capabilities, which means anti-satellite capabilities. Um, and yeah, ever since then, um, the sort of militarization of outer space, you could say, has been uh, increasing as the as space represents a vital aspect uh, of all modern militaries nowadays. Okay, so how would you say can the use of space for military action be conceptualized nowadays? So space capabilities for military use can broadly be summarized into three different categories. Um, the first category is space for defense, um, which doesn't exclude its use for offensive purposes as well, um, which essentially refers to space-based capabilities that serve as a force enabler during military conflict. And they can be broadly summarized into three different categories again. Um, you have intelligence, reconnaissance and surveillance, um, ISR, which for example includes earth observation, early missile warning systems, meteorology or signals, signals intelligence. Then you have positioning, navigation and timing, PNT, which facilitates for example the precise execution of military operations and weapon strikes um, by providing uh, enhanced situational awareness. Um, the U.S. Global Positioning System, GPS, is a good example of this. The third category is Satellite Communications, or SATCOMs, which represents uh, an essential competence for command and control during military conflict. So it allows for the quick transmission of critical intelligence um, and orders in basically any uh, environment that you could think of. What becomes apparent when you look at these various capabilities is that while they provide um, the ones that are in possession of it with tremendous leverage in and out of combat, they equally represent a serious vulnerability. Um, for that reason, defense of space refers to the protection of this Achilles heel that uh, space-based applications have become for many uh, countries that heavily rely on it. So, uh, most notably the United States, of course. Um, and this consists of all active or passive uh, measures uh, taken to protect space capabilities from uh, interference or attack. This could be unintentional hazards such as solar winds or space debris floating around in orbit. But it could also be so-called counter-space capabilities, uh, which I will get into in a second. Um, defensive efforts to counter these threats include, for example, measures to deceive, degrade or destroy enemy targeting systems or to just physically protect space assets. Um, another thing is to distribute and diversify the platforms or orbits used for the fulfillment of a certain capability. So for instance, the GPS system is not reliant on a single satellite or a ground station, so um, it's highly resilient against uh, interference. Interference uh, also brings us to a third category of military space applications, which are counter-space capabilities, as I just said. Uh, the threat scenario that militaries encounter in space is really expanding continuously due to technological progress. 
So the whole spectrum of counter space capabilities has really increased in recent years. And broadly, you can differentiate between four different types of counter space weapons. The first type is kinetic physical weapons, which are the oldest and most overt form of ASAT capability. And it refers to the physical destruction of, of, of a satellite, for instance, um, through kinetic impact. So this could be ballistic missiles or co-orbital uh, satellites that are placed in space and later maneuvered into other satellites. The second type is non-kinetic physical weapons, which is a more sophisticated alternative as they aim to physically damage assets without kinetic impact. This could include, for example, electromagnetic pulse weapons, EMPs, high-powered microwave weapons or high-powered laser weapons. Um, and they're substantially more difficult to, uh, to observe and attribute to its origin. So they're uh, a more elegant version, let's say, compared to the kinetic physical weapons. The third type are electronic counter space weapons, um, and they aim to jam or spoof radio frequency signals that are necessary for the transmission of data between the satellite and the end user on Earth. Um, so, and compared to physically destroying satellites, this is a significantly less intricate way with interfering as its um, technology is rather inexpensive and commercially available. And the fourth type and last type of counter space capabilities are cyber attacks, um, which target both the system, so both the satellite and the data that is being transferred. And as such, data could be intercepted, monitored, or corrupted. And in the worst case, uh, satellites could even be taken control over. Thank you for clarifying these very specific terms and technicalities. And now looking at the bigger picture, let's turn to the three major military powers, namely the USA, China, and Russia, and how they compare in terms of space military ambitions and posture. Well, as already mentioned earlier, the militarization of space is really in full thrust, um, which most notably manifests itself in the activities of the US, China and Russia. Um, first turning to the US, um, as already mentioned, the experiences of the Gulf War for the first time revealed the full potential of space-based capabilities, um, which led to space being declared a vital interest for national security in the US um, around the turn of the millennia. Um, around the same time, a commission headed by uh, Defense Secretary-designate Donald Rumsfeld, who reported a report to Congress that warned against a potential space Pearl Harbor um, due to other countries' counter space capabilities and advocated for an overhaul of the U.S. military organization and doctrine. Um, what followed was the Space Dominance Doctrine by the Bush administration in 2004. And yeah, no, not much change um, happened after that, but things really started to change when Trump assumed office. As organizational as well as doctrinal change on a much more fundamental level took place and the National Space Council was revived for the first time in 24 years. And what essentially changed was that space was not only seen as a critical support function during military conflict anymore, but being the theater of military conflict itself became sort of the the, the commonly held presumption in the White House. And in 2018, the US National Defense Strategy was released, which recognized that great power competition with China and Russia was a central challenge to the US and that space was a critical domain in which this competition would occur. 
And building on the NDS, uh, Trump also published the America First National Space Strategy, uh, which claimed that competitors have turned space into a warfighting domain. Um, also, only last month in June 2020, the Department of Defense released the Defense Space Strategy, which again underscored the notion of space being an area for great power competition. Um, many times highlighting Russia and China as the main competitors in this domain. And as a broader move um, to overhaul the US military approach to space, next to this uh, doctrinal change, uh, also organizational change appeared with the creation of the US Space Force, the USSF, um, which now constitutes the sixth branch of the US Armed Forces and coexists with the US Air Force in the Department of the Air Force. Additionally, the U.S. Space Command was re-established, tasked to develop a new space defense doctrine, which we saw published last June, and also to oversee warfighting operations in space. The third institutional reform to support the modernization of the U.S. space architecture was the establishment of the Space Development Agency, which is tasked to accelerate innovation and develop next-generation space capabilities for the USSF. Uh, the United States unquestionably maintains the most advanced space capabilities worldwide as they have by far the most operational experience in space integrated warfighting. If you compare, for example, the before mentioned Gulf War and the war in Iraq, um, precision guided munition increased from 10% to 70% in the later war. So considering the current resurgence in US space military ambition and the claim to uh, supremacy in space, the US space capabilities will most certainly advance quite remarkably in the foreseeable future. Coming to China, uh, civil as well as military ambitions in space are also firmly established. Um, the latter was first acknowledged by a doctrinal change in 2015 when the China military strategy stated that Outer space and cyberspace have become new commanding heights in strategic competition and that the first signs of a weaponization of outer space have appeared. This, however, is basically just a reaffirmation of preceding developments in that, as already mentioned, China has been investing quite heavily in anti-satellite capabilities ever since the Gulf War. And um, so although China also emphasized on the peaceful use of outer space, um, it becomes clear that space military capabilities are seen as quite uh, vital in serving China's national interest, uh, which was also reaffirmed in China's subsequent defense white paper of 2019, the last strategy paper on space so far, which expressed that space security provides uh, strategic assurance for national and social development in China. And other writings of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, um, also indicate that counter-space operations are seen as very important to deter uh, possible U.S. intervention in regional conflicts, for example, in the South China Sea. This orientation towards space was accompanied um, in the same year, also in 2015, with a reorganization of the uh, military when the People's Liberation Army Strategic Support Force, the PLA-SSF, um, was established and became operational in 2016. The PLA-SSF is under direct authority of the Central Military Commission, the National Defense Organization of the People's Republic of China, 
and uh, it is independent from other branches of the military. And uh, what is interesting about the PLA-SSF is that it combines the management of cyberspace, electromagnetic space, and outer space capabilities into one uh, organizational entity. So this underscores the understanding of China of modern informationized warfare, which is a highly recurrent theme in Chinese strategy writings. Um, so besides the development of military space doctrine, the SSF is also responsible for R&D, space launch and support, um, navigation, ISR operations, and everything that um, is included in space capabilities. Uh, as many space applications also have dual-use properties, the concept of civil-military integration has been also highly emphasized by, by China, uh, which is why the PLA-SSF also collaborates closely with the Chinese civil uh, and commercial space sector. In terms of capabilities, one could really say that China is well on track to seriously challenge the United States' long-standing superiority in space, uh, although the United States are, are still far ahead in many regards, but um, in terms of, for example, quantum-enabled communications, um, China is really at the technological forefront, you could say. And also in terms of PNT, for example, China is um, this year completing its uh, navigation constellation of 27 Beidou satellites, uh, which is the counterpart to the American GPS. Finally, coming to Russia, we have a country which, because of its Soviet history, has a long-standing tradition in space, as the Soviet Union was definitely a pioneer in uh, the exploration of outer space and space capabilities. Although the space sector in Russia suffered heavily after the collapse of the Soviet Union due to budgetary constraints and other setbacks, um, one can say that Russia definitely remains a global leader in space affairs, um, not only due to its heavy involvement in the ISS, for example, but also in terms of the capabilities that Russia possesses. Um, Russian military doctrine and strategic writings coming out of Russia have long recognized space as a warfighting domain and stated, for example, that no goal in any future war could be achieved unless um, you gain information superiority over the other, which in a lot of ways translates into a superiority in the space domain. When it comes to strategic focus of Russia, um, Russia perceives that the tremendous U.S. space capabilities undermine global strategic stability. While it also recognizes that this also represents a serious vulnerability for America, since there is a certain over-dependency on space-based services uh, in the military domain. So, for this reason, Russia has put in great emphasis on counter-space capabilities, uh, while at the same time trying to avoiding to not become too excessively reliant on space-based applications themselves. So the notion sort of is, if Russia could deny the adversary space-enabled warfare, its conventional weapon system would prevail in military conflict. Uh, organizationally, Russia adapted its military at the same time as China did in 2015, when the Air Force and the Aerospace Defense Troops were merged into the Aerospace Forces. This organizational change was explained by the Russian defense minister um, by stating that the center of gravity in the entire military domain had shifted to the aerospace sphere and was also needed to counter the U.S. prompt global strike doctrine, which is a program that would allow the United States to deliver military strikes globally in less than an hour. 
and generally one can say about Russia that it might not be able to compete with other space powers in terms of availability of resources or the scope of the entire um, organization, but it definitely maintains a robust spectrum of capabilities um, that are also based on decades of experience from especially the Soviet era. Listening to your answer, it becomes very clear that a lot is happening in the field of space military affairs. But what is the situation like in Europe? Is space even recognized as a relevant field of military ambition on an EU level? Well, in, in Europe, military space doctrine and governance is really still determined by the individual nation states. Um, and intergovernmental cooperation is really a defining characteristic of it, be it either bilateral or multilateral arrangements among EU members or within a NATO framework. Um, and also the extent to which security in space is regarded as, a, as an important area really differs among EU members. So for example, in France, we had the Space Defense Strategy and the Space Command um, adopted in 2019, whereas other countries such as Germany or Spain, but also Italy, have been far more reluctant to pursue uh, military ambitions in space. Uh, however, supranational cooperation is definitely becoming a, a more and more prominent feature um, as the EU is uh, incrementally emerging as a key player in the space domain, um, which already started in 2007 with the Lisbon Treaty, where space was defined a shared competence between the European Union and uh, the member states. Uh, in 2016, the European Commission released its space strategy for Europe, uh, which kind of underpinned the EU's ambitions in space affairs, and it highlighted that space capacities are strategically important to also security and defense-related policy objectives, uh, apart from civil and commercial objectives. And building on that strategy, the Commission proposed the EU space program in 2018, uh, which would allocate 16 billion euros to space activities in the next multi-annual financial framework, uh, which would go from 2021 to 2027. But as everybody knows, we've been uh, in sort of a special COVID situation since the beginning of the year. So uh, this could still significantly be curtailed uh, in the end. Um, if money is needed elsewhere. Um, another interesting development in Europe has been the creation of the Directorate General for Defense Industry and Space, headed by Thierry Breton, with the goal to improve the link between space and uh, defense and security. So this really highlights that there is an understanding in the EU for the intertwined areas of space and defense. In terms of capability development, um, we have two PESCO projects. Um, which are dedicated to space affairs, namely the EU radio navigation solution uh, to improve military PNT capabilities and the European Military Space Surveillance Awareness Network to develop an autonomous um, EU military capability in this field. Also, one of the 11 priorities in the capability development plan of the European Defense Agency uh, is called Space-Based Information and Communication Services with the goal to further develop ISR, PNT, SETCOM, and other space capabilities. At the heart of the EU space capability um, spectrum are the two flagship programs, Galileo and Copernicus, uh, which are either under full or partial ownership of the EU. And 
those two have been a real milestone, a more supranational approach to space activities in Europe. Uh, Galileo, which is set to become operational this year, is a state-of-the-art global navigation constellation similar to the GPS with primarily civilian purposes, uh, but it could potentially be used militarily if member states chose to do so. Copernicus provides ISR capabilities um, through Earth observation and monitoring and it's already being used in a security uh, and defense context uh, for for instance, border surveillance, maritime surveillance, or to support to the EU External Action Service. Not surprisingly, uh, as in other areas of security and defense, the EU still remains a marginal actor in space military affairs. However, um, there is definitely a recognition in Europe that the general environment, be it in the space domain or in international relations in general, uh, is becoming increasingly hostile, uh, which is why there is uh, a sense of urgency that um, shared European space assets had to be protected and also that uh, interests had to be protected. So for that reason, um, enhanced cooperation and ambition um, in the space domain in Europe can definitely be expected in, in the coming years. To bring some further expertise into the discussion from someone who is deeply engaged in space affairs for 10 plus years now, I'm very happy to welcome Mr. Sebastian Moranta from the European Space Policy Institute, or ESPI, here in Vienna. ESPI provides independent analysis and advice with the aim of supporting space as a strategic policy area for Europe. ESPI's work also reflects how space can contribute to Europe's role in global politics as a strong and principled actor. Mr. Moranta is currently the coordinator of studies at the European Space Policy Institute, and we are very happy to have him here with us today. A very warm welcome. Thank you, and I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, always a pleasure to, uh, to be able to contribute to, uh, to the work of other institutes. So happy to be here. So we'll jump right in with the first question, which would be, how do you assess military ambitions in space on an EU level? And what have been the major milestones from your perspective? So with regards to the, the military ambitions of the, at the EU level, that's, that's the, I guess, important part of the question at the EU level. Uh, because so far, and I guess uh, we will be able to, to, to dig into that, so far the efforts and the ambitions in the uh, field of military space, of space defense, uh, have been mostly at, uh, at the national level. So what's happening, and what I think is, is interesting to, to note, is that there is an increasing uh, willingness of the European Union to be involved in military affairs uh, at the European level. And of course, it encompasses also space, uh, uh, space topics, but not only. So I would rather say that uh, space is, uh, the, the way the EU is handling uh, military space is more connected to the fact that the EU is, in, is uh, having an increasing, uh, increasingly important and increasingly central role in military affairs rather than the, 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 the contrary. What have been the, the, the major milestones? Uh, I guess that the, the intention to uh, involve the European Union in military affairs is a, lo is a long-standing one. It's not absolutely brand new. Um, but so far, defense, military, have been quite left aside from the whole European Union construction. 
And recently, we saw an acceleration of uh, the, the topic of the, the role of the EU in, in military affairs. I guess that uh, under the Juncker uh, uh, Commission, there has been really uh, an acceleration since the, the Lisbon Treaty. Also, there has been a, a, strong, uh, a strong push uh, for the EU to be involved in, in, defense, uh, in defense and in military affairs. And connected to this, very close to the topic or space affairs and space military affairs. So it's the acceleration of, uh, of uh, the role of the EU in defense that is also embarking the question of the role of the EU in uh, military space. That's what I, what, I, what I would say. But I guess that with regards specifically to space, what has been the, the most important, uh, the most important um, milestone recently is the change in the European Commission and the creation of the DG, DG DEFIS uh, for uh, defense uh, industries and space. What's interesting there is two things. First, the fact that uh, defense industries are getting their own DG and the fact that it's brought together with space, which, uh, uh, which uh, shows that the EU really intends to build on the synergies between the two sectors, between the two industries. And we're very much looking forward to seeing what, uh, what's going to happen in this field. So, uh, as already mentioned before by Christoph, uh, France, for example, released its own space defense strategy and created the Space Command back in 2019. Do you see military activities in space in Europe primarily as a national task? Or is cooperation on an EU level becoming more and more relevant? So I would say both. Uh, it is indeed, first and foremost, uh, a national, uh, national topic. So it's been handled and it is being handled and it will continue to be handled, first and foremost, at national level, just like most uh, military uh, and defense-related uh, uh, related areas. Now, it is also true that... Uh, the role of the European Union in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this topic is developing. It is still a bit difficult to see what will be the role of the EU concretely and to understand to what extent member states will be ready to give more responsibilities to the EU. I guess that just the same way that uh, the role of the European Union uh, developed quite significantly in the in the in the in the space sector over the last two decades. It will uh, and it went through different milestones step by step. Uh, I guess it's going to be the same thing for defense, and it's going to be the same thing for uh, space defense. Um, what we can add on 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 on, on this question is that um, there is already and there has already been quite a significant um, European cooperation, uh, even outside the EU. So there is not only national and, uh, and European Union level. In the space defense and in the defense uh, sector, there is also everything that is related to intergovernmental uh, uh, cooperation. And on this, most European uh, space military programs are actually conducted in close cooperation between one or, 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 or more, uh, between two or more countries. Uh, this is the case of actually most, uh, doesn't matter whether it's, uh, it's uh, uh, programs for Earth observation and, uh, and intelligence, 
It's, uh, it also involves uh, uh, programs related to telecommunication. They are actually most of the time conducted as joint projects and there are different ways uh, to, 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 to cooperate. Sometimes they really have uh, both access to the capabilities of the, of the satellites. Sometimes it's one country that is responsible for the, for the, for the, for the mission, but that then shares uh, images with a consortium of, uh, of other countries. So what I, what, I, what I think is important to recall is that European cooperation is already taking place. Now, there is the question of the supranational role of the European Union. And here, when you talk to military, what I guess they are expecting from, um, from the EU is mostly to provide complementary funding and in a way to support optimization across Europe. But there is still quite some reluctance, I feel, from the, the, the military to see the European Union having a more direct involvement in uh, an influence on their uh, in their in their program so for a while for a while space defense uh, space defense will remain a national topic and the eu will have to prove step by step that first it is a relevant actor in the domain second uh, that it can build the necessary expertise and third, that the culture uh, in, the, in, the, in the defense domain can evolve sufficiently to leave some uh, room to the European Union in terms of decision making, in terms of uh, uh, program management and uh, uh, potentially in the future in terms of military operations. Another thing uh, you already briefly touched upon uh, is the current pandemic. So um, I would like to go a little bit deeper into that. How do you see uh, COVID-19 uh, related to space activities? Um, will there be a severe impact, uh, especially militarily, like budgetary constraints and so on and so forth? How do you see that in the next weeks, months, years? So actually, uh, I'm happy that you raised the question because we just published uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, we just published a, a report on the COVID-19 crisis and the European space sector. Uh, just to very quickly uh, set a bit the, 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 the landscape and, uh, and, uh, and, and give you the major conclusions of the report. First, space was put to good use uh, in the frame of the crisis for sometimes unexpected applications. Huh? Uh, but space has been extensively used to monitor the development of the crisis, to uh, 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 support the actual response to the crisis, to support epidemiologic research, and to, uh, to a number of things. And it really showcased, so the crisis, uh, it's a bit cynical for me, but uh, uh, um, the, the crisis really showcased the role that space, the multiple role that space uh, can, uh, can, uh, can play in uh, supporting uh, uh, crisis management, and also demonstrated the massive, massive progress made by European, uh, and in particular European Union programs, Galileo, Copernicus, I'm thinking uh, first and foremost, but also the, ma the, major, uh, the major developments of the capabilities, expertise of the uh, European Union in this field. The second thing is that, yes, the space sector, the space industry has been significantly impacted by the crisis. I will not get into the details uh, because I don't think it's, uh, it's very interesting for, uh, for, for this podcast. But what we can say is that public programs do play a big role for the, for the space industry 
and on these uh, programs, the different uh, actors, the different uh, institutions actually managed to set up a few mitigation measures that, uh, that uh, will limit the direct impact at least, we'll see in the, in the, in the, in the longer term. The second thing uh, we can say is that on the commercial markets, the situation is very different. Uh, and there has been some payment uh, delays, there has been some payment cancellations, some orders cancellations, and all this will impact the, the space sector uh, competitiveness, innovation in, in the future. What, what I guess we can say is that the space sector, the European space sector, will come out of the crisis weakened. And this is, this is important to, to take stock of it. Now, the big question that we will have with regards uh, to, to, to space is the place that will be given uh, to space in the post-COVID uh, Europe. So this is something, this is a topic that is uh, rising, uh, that is associated to a number of political items that are rising in governmental agendas, such as economic resilience, such as uh, sustainable growth, such as uh, strategic autonomy, such as uh, public safety, all those topics are rising in the in the in the in the political agendas of uh, of the different governments, and uh, the, the it seems that uh, European member states, European Union, and the European mm -hmm. Union, are uh, more comfortable with uh, tackling a number of uh, of topics that so far had been a bit uh, left aside. So there will be a question on the place of space in the future. What we can tell from a really purely uh, uh, factual, uh, on a purely factual basis, is that the space sector, the space budgets, have already been affected. So there, uh, the, the revision of the, the plan for the multi-annual financial framework, in the new version, there was 16 billion planned at the, in, in 2018. Uh, including the EU program plus budget for a few agencies of the of the of the European Union, and it has been actually reduced to 15 billion. So it may one billion may not look like a, a big thing, but for the space sector, it is actually a big thing. It is actually a big thing. So there has been a concrete impact. Now, first, this budget has not been uh, voted. Uh, it has not been approved yet. Second, there are other instruments. And we are uh, very much uh, uh, looking forward to uh, uh, understanding better how these new instruments uh, implemented by the, by the European Union may be used to support the space sector. So this is for the space sector. With regards to, to, to space defense, difficult to say. Of course, we are keeping an eye on the European Defense Fund, uh, which also suffered uh, uh, some cuts. Uh, but um, I, I don't have uh, them in mind, and uh, and very likely the, the the activities will be will be will be influenced by this, but I do not expect uh, that the COVID nineteen, with regards to space, with regards to to defense, will uh, uh, play such a major role. It's the overall, uh, uh, the, it's with regards to the overall budget, but they're difficult to, difficult to anticipate. Thank you very much for this uh, detailed answer. And uh, moving on to one final question. Um, what would you say um, are the certain areas in which the EU needs to catch up with other actors in the space domain? And do you have any specific recommendations for future EU military objectives? I would say, and this is a, this is a very tricky question, a very tricky in the sense that um, my first 
answer would be to say in most areas um, but uh, uh, this is this is very relative to the effort that uh, Europe is making in uh, military space with regards to other spacefaring nations the military budget for space only for space activities in the US is already bigger than the overall space budget uh, of the of the uh, available uh, in in Europe so already in terms of means in terms of capabilities there is there is just the, the, the situation is way too lopsided to be able to provide some kind of, uh, of, of compare, uh, comparable uh, analysis of, or comparison of the, of, the, of the situation in Europe, in the UN, in the United States. Um, the, we're just not playing in the same, mm. uh, in the same, uh, in the same field. Yeah, I think the uh, Space Development Agency in the US proposed a project for $11 billion dollars over the next five years um, for a new satellite constellation. Um, in the defense sector. So I think if you compare 11 billion for a defense project in the space sector to the whole space budget proposed uh, for the EU multi-annual financial framework, there's uh, already a huge difference. Oh, exactly, exactly. Plus, it's one project among many. So, no, no, I, I guess it's important to recall that we're not, uh, um, um, we're not following the same objectives. We, are, we do not have the same means. So it is, it is very difficult to compare the situation in the United States and in Europe. Now, if we look at other spacefaring nations, uh, we would like maybe to compare ourselves to uh, Russia, to China, to India, to, 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 to Japan. There, um, there is also another major difference, which is the, the fact that, let's take a look at Galileo. Galileo, which is the, basically the European uh, GPS, although I know that uh, uh, people at, uh, uh, in the European space sector don't like to, to, to say it like this, but it's, uh, it's I guess, the best way to, to explain what it is. So it is the European, the European GPS, but there is also a, giant, a Chinese GPS that's called Beidou. There is also a Russian GPS that's called GLONASS. All these programs, GPS, GLONASS, Beidou, are all military programs. They are handled on defense budgets by the military. We, in Europe, are the only ones having a GNSS program which plays a strategic uh, role, including for defense matters, uh, through the publicly uh, regulated service, for example, for Galileo, that, that's the name of, uh, of this uh, specific signal that will be available for governmental and military, uh, military personnel. It's the only one that is managed as a civil program. So you see that we just do not follow the same, uh, the same approach. We in Europe have a much more civil oriented, we have a much more commercial oriented uh, approach to space. There is rising though rising questions about the relevance and the effectiveness of this approach in a changing a changing a changing ecosystem so this might change in the future and we may find uh, we may uh, um, have uh, more strategic concerns back uh, as pillar of uh, of developments uh, of developments in the in the in the space uh, in the space program, we will see what uh, what uh, the way it's going to 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 develop. But today it's not about catching up. Um, it's about uh, making sure that space does serve strategic interests of Europe in the correct way. 
um, and I guess this uh, this is uh, this is uh, this is a question that uh, that uh, that will have to be tackled soon. We are speaking about access to space, strategic access to space. Uh, are we doing what is necessary to make sure that we have a strategic uh, uh, an access to space that serves uh, strategic purposes? This is a, this is a, this is a, an interesting question, I guess. It's the same thing for for, for space programs. Are we developing uh, space programs? Are we making the uh, do we have the right level of effort and do we have do we take the necessary uh, steps to make sure that space does serve the the strategic interest uh, of Europe? That's also another question. Well, I think there are many, many more aspects we could touch upon um, and many more questions for you to answer. But uh, we're starting to run out of time. So I would like to thank you very much for being here with us today and for providing your insights uh, and giving us a clear picture of what's going on and uh, what place Europe or the EU uh, has currently in the space domain. Thank you very much for coming here today. And thank you for your invitation. We stand, of course, ready to help you in any future space-related research that you may conduct. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to us today. And you can look forward to many more podcasts to come, like our next episode, which will lay out the Austrian-Chinese relations during COVID-19. So stay tuned and goodbye. Goodbye.